Now, we live in an area where people love to talk about where they want to live other than here, right? <laughs> the Central Valley seems to be one of the fountainheads of the Cal Exit movement uh, as people see greener pastures and states to the east. Now, I'm guessing that a sizable number of people in this room have either known friends or family who have left the state or have personally co contemplated moving themselves. That's fine. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> now, where you live matters. It really does. It matters in a lot of different ways. And it's true that some places are nicer than others, to be sure. Some places are more affordable than others. Some places have a greater saturation of sinfulness than others. There are many, many factors that go through our minds when it comes to deciding this important issue. And if you are one of the many people thinking about a long-term plan to leave California for one oasis or another, I'm not going to say that you're not allowed to do that or pursue that desire or maybe even that God is leading you that way. I will say that God most definitely has an opinion on where you live because he has an opinion on how you live your life and where you live it. God has countless providential intentions for your life. You know, we read these stories in the Bible and we see the great providence of God working out in fantastic ways that make us marvel and smile and laugh and just thank God for how great and powerful He is. But sometimes we forgot to then apply it to ourselves and realize that, yeah, and we follow in that faith as well. God also has providential intentions for your life. And all that means is that God wants to use your life for His glory and to minister to certain people in the world. And so God has a definite opinion on where you live. And he knows all of the factors of the where, the when, the who, the why, the how that are going to shape your life and the life of your family. He knows what influences will enhance your life for your good and for his glory. And he knows which influences would corrupt your life, your family, and your testimony even ones that might seem good from our vantage point. Very important. Now, the story of Abraham is a story of God drawing a family to himself and teaching them to not only understand his ways, but to follow in those ways, to choose to go after him and choose to go where he's leading. This is the same life of faith that we're to live out as Christians today. Right? You and I as Christians are to walk in this same life of faith that Abraham and his family was called to walk in. Now, we have way more information than Abraham had. We have way more equipping than Abraham had. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Abraham didn't have that. We have the completed Word of God. Abraham didn't have that. We have the community of the church. Abraham didn't have that. We have all of these different things. But the life of faith that we're being called to is the same. And, and where God wants us to live out that life is a significant part of his plan for us. Now, luckily, the Bible presents us with detailed accounts of real people who were working through these very same issues, where to live, who to be among, these sorts of things. And it shows us the difference between fatal disaster and fantastic development. And it's put on display in our passage tonight. Now, of course, in a broader sense, our text tonight is about more than just where you live, more than your zip code. 
It gives us insight into how to answer the big question of what's next for my life. Or maybe if you think, well, my life's pretty good, then answering the question of, okay, well, how should I continue in life? Whether you're packing up, staying put, these are questions that we have to ask ourselves each and every day. And especially if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to just let life happen to you, but you want to live life on purpose, then these are questions that you ask, and they're important questions. So let's take a look at God's opinions uh, in principle on these things. Verse 1 says, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. We saw Abraham's disastrous trip down to Egypt and how while trying to escape a famine, he got absolutely caught up in compromise. It was a complete debacle. And now he's making the very same trip he had made, but in reverse. If you go back to chapter 12, you saw that he came down from Ur of the Chaldees, came down from Haran. He went from Bethel, then he traveled down to the Negev into Egypt. So he's taking this trip in reverse, returning back to where he was. Now, we get some hints about some relational things that are going on here. First of all, Sarah is once again called his wife. It's a small thing, but it's an important thing. In Egypt, Abraham had forgotten, really he had given up, his duty as a husband to protect Sarah, to watch out for her, to lead his family. He had, he had forgotten that duty, and he had used Sarah not as a wife, as a bargaining chip. She became an item he traded for financial security, and it was a really bad thing, as we saw last time. And I'm sure that now that they were through that and had been kicked out of Egypt, they were deported out of Egypt, but now they're back together, I'm sure they had some very significant sore spots in their relationship as husband and wife. Ladies, how would you feel if your husband said, hey, Remember how I said we were going to Egypt? What I meant was you're going to be taken into Pharaoh's harem, but at least our sheep get to eat, right? And so, so they would have had some problems, but things at least are back where they should be when it comes to she's no longer the woman. In the, in the previous passage, you see Sarah being referred to as the woman. They saw the woman, and she was being treated as if she was an object, as if she was a bargaining chip. But here we have this restoration between husband and wife and all that that entails, and that is a good thing. Now, we also see Lot listed almost like a tag-along, kind of an afterthought. Abram, his wife, all he had, oh, and Lot too. Verse 2 says this, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Now, Jesus famously and rightly, of course, said that it is incredibly difficult for rich people to follow God, and that's true. But, of course, it isn't impossible, and we have many good examples of people who have been blessed with material wealth who serve the Lord uh, all the same. Now, it's so easy for us to get caught up in this kind of discussion, and it's always easier to say, well, yeah, but I'm not wealthy. Uh, But the truth is, if you have a toilet in your house, you are wealthier than, I think the number is 50% of the entire world. If you live at the poverty line in America, you are wealthier than something like 99.3% of all humans in all of human history, right? So anyone else would look and say, well, of course, you guys, us, we're all wealthy, and we, of course, it's all relative. But these are principles that we need to grapple through as, as Christians who want to honor the Lord. And Jesus said, hey, listen, It's really difficult for a rich man to follow God, but it isn't impossible. It's easy to take on a sort of 
doctrinal mentality which says that poverty is automatically piety and wealth is automatically wicked. But that isn't true. It's not true at all. It is true that wealth is very dangerous. We're warned about it as Christians again and again and again in the Bible, and we are given these examples to show, hey, look what happens here when wealth takes the wrong place in a person's heart and in a person's mind. And so we are warned a lot about how it can take hold of our hearts and take hold of our attention and how it can drive us away from God. Just look at the rich young ruler, great example. But material abundance isn't automatically an evil thing. To the contrary, material abundance can be used in wonderful ways for the Lord's work, ways that can't be accomplished without material abundance in the normal way of, of speaking, right? So here's an example. Bob Edmiston, never heard of him before today, but Bob Edmiston is a, a lord in Great Britain. He's in the House of Lords, but he's also Great Britain's first vocally Christian billionaire. He's an evangelical billionaire. He, he imports cars and sells property and cars, and he's a billionaire. But as an evangelical, he recognizes that we are called to spread the gospel, that it's our responsibility. And so, according to the research I found, since 1998, he has donated over $150 million to evangelical-type organizations like Christian Vision, which is an evangelical gospel-spreading foundation that he established, and they have presented the gospel to more than 38 million people worldwide. Now, that's something that is... Of course, you know, I'm able to share the gospel with one or two people today if I went out and found them, right? But there's a really good chance that in my life, I'm not going to share the gospel with 38 million people. And that's okay, because it's not just about numbers. But I think you understand. Sometimes you have this small-scale ministry of individuals reaching out to one another, and sometimes the Lord loves to do large-scale ministry, and in many cases, large-scale ministry takes large-scale resources. Not always. God can do whatever He wants in whatever way He wants. But I think you understand what I mean. It's not a bad thing that Bob has a bunch of money and that he has given a bunch of that money in order so that the gospel can be preached in ways that it hasn't been, in areas it hasn't been preached yet. Now, for every Bob... There are probably many, many Christians who decided to pursue wealth at the cost of their faith, at the expense of their faith, where they gave up serving or they gave up giving or they gave up growing in the Lord or devoting themselves to them because the overtime pay was too good to turn, turn down or for some other financial reason. And so this is a balance that we have to work out as individuals. First, we should probably acknowledge that in the grand scheme of things, we have greater luxuries than King Solomon had right? doesn't mean that we're all rolling, but, but we have to work through this with the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what, what do you want me to do with what you've allowed me to have? The heart is the issue. And what that wealth does to your relationship with Jesus, that's what matters, not whether you have a pile of coins or not. Make sense? Okay. Verse 3 says, Abraham went by stages from the Negev to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. So Abraham goes back to the very place where he had previously been in personal communion with God. Uh, it's, it's clear that he knows that what happened in Egypt was a really big mistake. 
And so in response to that, he says, I need to get back to where I was when me and God were in fellowship and communion together. It is a historical picture for us of repentance. Going to Egypt was wrong. It was the wrong motivation. It was the wrong method. It was the wrong location. It was just wrong. Coming to this altar back in Bethel, he recognizes that, okay, that trip was a failure, but it wasn't because God failed me. It was because I, Abraham, had left God. I had left the will of God. I had moved away from him. And Abraham recognizes that he needs cleansing. He needs the covering of the holiness of God. That's why he goes to the altar. And this is important too. Abraham recognizes that even though he is messed up, God will receive him back just as before. What a great testimony to how gracious and loving God is. Abraham really didn't know very much compared to what we know. But he knew that this God would be there at the altar when he showed up to repent. Does that make sense? Now, God's going to reveal to him in a moment here. He's like, yeah, I don't leave you or forsake you, even when you went and did a knucklehead thing down in Egypt. But Abraham knew that, okay, if I return to Bethel, in a, in a proverbial sense, God will be there ready for me. And that's a beautiful thing. God knows that we're imperfect. He knows everything that you have ever done and everything you ever will do, and he loves you all the same. He doesn't want you to disobey It hurts him, his heart, when you disobey. For your good, we must obey God and go his way. And he is God, as we talked about before. He is God. He is the master. He is the owner. We belong to him. And so we must obey him because he's God. But at the same time, we are sinners. And when we sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin because he loves us and that's the whole point of working out this plan of salvation to save human beings from their sin if they are willing to receive it by grace through faith. This was quite a trip, more than 400 miles. To give you perspective, if you left here and walked to Tijuana, you'd still have 100 miles to go, okay? I mean, it's pretty far and you have to take like a ton of sheep and goats with you. But Abraham was willing to go the distance because this was where he belonged. As we read the story, we see his change of heart. Back in chapter 12, Abraham's focus was on grass for his flocks, right? Now what is his intention on? It's just on this altar. I have to get back to the altar. I need to be back in communion with God. Notice, there's no discussion here of that famine that he was so worried about in the last passage. There's no discussion of, where, well, where are my sheep going to eat? I mean, he got kicked out. We don't know how long they were in Egypt, but they got kicked out of Egypt. There was no indication that, well, when the famine was over, they left Egypt. No, they just got deported out of Egypt and headed back. And so there's no indication necessarily that the famine was over. And yet we see that all he cares about is getting back to Bethel. And surprise, surprise, when he's in close harmony and relationship to the Lord, the famine is no longer a concern to him. It's no longer a problem that's weighing him down and causing him to make these... uh, compromise decisions. And so, interesting. Verse 5, now Lot, who is traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. We get the sense here that there is a growing independence in the mind of Lot. He's got his own thing going. He's separated out his own stuff and his own interests. He's the roommate that's putting tape with his name on everything. This is mine. You have your stuff. I have my stuff. 
I'm happy that we live together for now, but stop touching my jug of milk, right? That's kind of the, the vibe we're getting here. He, these two men are from the same family. Uh, they have the same background. They're in the same place. They both have most of the same resources. They're both wealthy. But we're going to see their hearts and therefore their decision-making process is radically different. Their mindsets are poles apart. Verse 6, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Uh, Dr. Bruce Waltke points out that in the previous chapter, Abraham had all sorts of difficulty because of the lack brought about by the famine, right? That had motivated his thinking and his desire to go to Egypt. It wasn't where he was supposed to be. It's not where God had told him to be. But he said, well, uh, we lack food and water for our, our herds, and so we got to get where there is some. And so that lack had caused all the difficulty in the previous passage. But here, what do we see? We see the opposite. There's tension and difficulty because of material abundance. They have too much stuff, and it's causing problems. And what this tells us is the spiritual principle that the Bible reveals so many times over, our circumstances do not determine our spiritual health. Paul the Apostle specifically taught that our spiritual wellness is independent from your earthly circumstances. It is independent from worldly events. It is independent of your state of affairs. It is independent of your bank account, of what party is in power, of whether your nation is in a time of war or peace. Your spiritual health can be good and growing no matter what is going on. In abundance or in lack, we are to commune with God, be content in Him, and grow with Him and do His will. It's a matter of obedience and proper perspective on our part. So we can't come before the Lord and say, well, Lord, if I just had you know, the following circumstances, then I would be able to honor you. Then I would be able to devote myself to you. Then I would be able to honor you with my life and my words and my thoughts. I mean, if that was the case, then Christianity is not going to work, Right? Because for most of the church's history, the church has been persecuted and set upon and oppressed and people have been impoverished and those sorts of things. And so Paul comes right out and he says, I have learned in all situations to be spiritually healthy, to be content in God, to grow in God, to hear from God and devote myself to Him, whether I'm bobbing in the ocean because of a shipwreck or if I'm in the palace talking to a king. This quarreling also drives home an important truth. Things are not always better when you have more. So on the one hand, your earthly circumstances do not determine whether you are spiritually healthy or not. But at the same time, we all, we, obviously we want things to be good in life, better in life. That's not a bad desire, okay? No one's saying that we have to go around whipping ourselves or anything like that. We live very well in America. I'm happy for that. It's a good thing. It's not wrong to have a good, quiet life full of the blessings that God gives us. But things are not always better just because you have more. Their great abundance was causing relational problems where there hadn't been relational problems before. Now, we're given that note about the Canaanites and the Perizzites at the end of verse 7 there. It's possible that those folks were controlling all the good grazing spots and the water in the area, leaving Abraham and Lot just scraps to work with. 
but it's also possible that this is being thrown in there because this family quarrel had become very public and was being watched by the unbelievers in the region. In fact, in later parts of the Bible, the word used here for quarreling is used for legal disputes. And so this was an ugly situation that was spilling out into the public. When Christian disagreements spill out into the public square, it is a very damaging thing because it destroys the testimony God wants to share with you. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, if a Christian falls into sin that, okay, well, you should just cover over that and sweep that under the rug and pretend like nothing happened. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about believers who are disagreeing with one another, quarreling over something. In this situation, you have people quarreling over stuff, right? The kinds of quarrels that you see churches split over, families split over sometimes, or, or prominent Christian leaders arguing about. So, so often connected with stuff. And it's becoming more and more common in the wider Christian culture for everybody to say, well, then I'll see you in court. And Christians suing one another and, and, and having PR campaigns and all this kind of weird worldly stuff. When that happens, it destroys the testimony God wants to share through you as a God of grace and a God of compassion and mercy and a God who is able to overcome the problems of this world. As Abraham met people, he would have said to them, hey, I'm new here. The one true God has called me out of all, me out of all of the other people of the world to be a father of a new nation, and through that nation, all the world will be blessed. That's what God had told him. And then the people he's talking to would go, uh-huh, um, is that your herdsman fist fighting with his cousin <laughs> over in the pasture there? Uh, your your uh, nephew filed a bunch of grievances about you because he doesn't like the way that your sheep are eating the grass over here. Testimony and disputes are still very real factors in our Christian lives. We're going to find ourselves in a dispute from time to time, right? You're going to find yourself in a dispute with another believer or another family member from time to time. It happens. That's normal. And you know what? In some cases, it's even beneficial. How can we say that? Well, read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He said to that church, he said, hey, you guys got a lot of stuff going on. Some of the things you have going on are disputes. Some of those disputes are good because it brings out uh, an understanding of, of who is approved and who's not. Now, at the same time, when Christians are fighting about material things, like we're seeing these herdsmen doing here, it is a terrible blight on the name of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul absolutely rebukes the church for their selfish public quarreling, and he says, how dare you take these disputes in front of unbelievers? How dare you uh, bring this, this to a secular court and sue one another over this stuff? The Christian life is not defined by constantly demanding our rights and constantly being proven right in the eyes of others. The Christian life is defined by laying down ourselves for the sake of the Lord, even if that means we are going to be wronged. Even if we are right and it means we have to be wronged and we have to lose our rights, that is what the Lord has called us to, in particular when we're talking about interacting with other Christians. Abraham understood the priority of peace in this situation. So in verse 8, Abraham said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. 
Family relationship was a high priority for Abraham, a higher priority than where his flocks and herds were going to get food and water. The testimony of God was a higher priority than these other things. As they work through this conflict, it's important to remember that Abraham is the one in authority, absolutely, period, no other, no other way of looking at it. He has the right to demand whatever he wanted and to send Lot packing, and Lot had little recourse in this time and culture. But from that position of strength and authority, we see Abraham speaking humbly and kindly to his nephew, even though he didn't have to. He doesn't vent his anger. He doesn't start pointing fingers or casting blame. His goal is peace if they can get it in a godly way, not peace at any cost. Abraham has learned, at least at this moment, the lesson of, hey, don't do things at any cost. Don't get family security at any cost. It cost him his wife in the last passage. Don't do, you know, he says, hey, I, I want peace, but we're going to do this in a godly way. So verse 9, here's the plan. Isn't the whole land before you separate from me? If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So this is a, uh, a tender moment, a moment of vulnerability if Lot had caught on to how gracious his uncle was being and realized, hey, you know what? I probably want to hang out with this guy to whom the Lord of heaven and earth interacts and talks and appears to. But Lot doesn't bite on the grace. And so instead he says, yeah, sure, we'll separate. And so we see that Abraham really wants peace in this situation. And we know he really loves Lot. But it's clear that he has realized that the solution is separation as long as Lot is going to stay in the mentality and in the heart uh, position that he's in. In Romans 12, Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And you know what that means? It means it's not always possible. It means that sometimes the other party isn't going to do the right thing or the godly thing or the gracious thing. And so as far as it depends on you, try to live at peace with everyone. And here, sadly, Abraham has come to the conclusion that if Lot is not going to adjust his heart and become more of a godly person, then living together isn't going to work anymore. Their life goals and their mentalities are too far apart. If you find yourself in a dispute with a family member or someone in the family of faith, it may be the best solution that you distance yourself from them. Now, Abraham doesn't disown Lot. He doesn't say, you're dead to me. He doesn't burn down his tents or do anything like that. In fact, he's going to risk his own life for Lot in the very next chapter. But for now, there was going to have to be some distance between them because how can two walk together unless they are agreed? And clearly, Lot is not agreed with the kind of life that Abraham wants to live in. And to bring an end to hostility, Abraham did some hard things. He sacrificed his rights. He parted ways with someone he really cared about. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot doesn't take a trip to the altar to seek the Lord. He takes a sightseeing trip to scope out irrigation. Notice what's, what clinches the choice for him. The Jordan Plain was just like Egypt. Uh-oh. Lot had become enamored of Egypt during their 
ill-advised visit in the last passage. While Abraham was concerned with how he could get back to fellowship with God, Lot is thinking, how can I get back to that Egyptian lifestyle? How can I get back to that Egyptian way of doing things? In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare made famous the line, all that glitters is not gold. And Lot, man, is he going to learn that the hard way. He chose where to live. He chose what was next in his life based on the glittering promises of wealth and stability and luxury. And few stories end in as appalling and ghastly ways as Lot's story. Uh, It is just shocking and terrible. And remember, Lot was a believer. Uh, We could excuse this behavior if it was just some pagan unbeliever, but Lot was a believer, a righteous man, Peter declares, to our astonishment as people who know the story. But he, Lot, assumed that he knew what was best for his future, and he didn't bother to consult the Lord. Verse 11, so Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself, and then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. The one time Abraham speaks in this passage, we see him talking about us, we, our, family, and here we see Lot choose for himself. Abraham's mentality was, what can I give? Lot's was, what can I get? And he moves out to the east, and as we've seen before in Genesis, eastward movements seem to coincide with separation from God. Adam and Eve, east of Eden. Cain, east from the Lord. The Babel builders, same thing. Lot has made a very bad decision, and it was one that undoubtedly hurt Abraham quite a bit. He loved Lot. He was willing to die for Lot. He was willing to to test God. We'll get to it where he just keeps saying, well, what about 50 people? What about 40 people? What about 30 people? He knows exactly who he's talking to, and he's like, please don't be mad. What about 10 people? He's willing to do these things for Lot because he loves him, and and yet uh, we'll see that doing the right thing, going God's way, isn't always easy. Sometimes it costs in very painful ways, and it still needs to be done. Verse 12, Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. We see another comparison here. Abraham lived in Canaan, but clearly he was not mingled in with the people. Lot, on the other hand, got in the mix almost immediately. Of course, this is a representation of the command we're given as Christians to be in the world, but not of the world. We're given a second eerie foreshadowing of something cataclysmic that's going to go down at Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us know the story, but leading up to it here, we should be very concerned for Lot and his family. The people he is choosing to live his life among were shockingly evil. Lot is ignoring very clear, very significant factors. Why? The grass is so green. It's just so green. I can't pass it up. It's going to be so good for my herds. It's going to be so good for my flocks. One commentator points out that Lot thought that he was in paradise, and in reality, he was this close to hellfire, right? Fire and brimstone are going to rain down on his city, and he barely escapes with his life. So where would Abraham live? Verse 14, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from place, the place where you are, look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. With Lot leaving, perhaps Abraham must have felt the sting of abandonment. Wouldn't you? I think we would. These were real people. They had real affection for one another. 
he would have felt that sting of abandonment. Lot chose, he said, yeah, I, I, I don't care if you live or die, Abraham, I'm going over here. Thanks for the land, you know. But in that moment of isolation, the Lord comes and reveals many great things to Abraham, not least of which was that God had not left, that God was still with Abraham and his family. The Lord sends Abraham out on a sightseeing tour of his own. He says, it's all yours. Now, we have to pay attention to this promise. It was a true, literal promise forever, forever, right? Is that the Sandlot? I can't remember. It was not a spiritual analogy. It was a literal guarantee. That valley to the south, that stream on your west, those hills out in front, all of it belongs to Abraham's literal physical descendants forever, okay? God has not and will not go back on his word. Verse 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could be counted. The Lord promised they would soon have children of their own and that they would have a perpetual family, safe in the providence of God. And though the world and Satan have come against God's chosen people with all their terrible might for all the centuries, God still sustains the children of Abraham. Verse 17, get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. Abraham had already seen a lot of the land. After all, coming down from Haran, he would have come fr from the north. He traveled through the length of the land once on his way to Egypt. He traveled back up through it again a second time when he was going back to Bethel. And what does the Lord say? Hey, take a walk again. Go take another look. It's a good reminder that in the Christian life, there's going to be a lot of retreading over things the Lord has already shown you. Just because we've seen it once doesn't mean we don't need to see it again and again and again and again as we open His Word and see the truth that's being poured out for us. For example, from the beginning of your walk with the Lord, you probably heard that God loves you, right? That is true. That's a foundational truth that most people encounter that foundational truth in the very first moments of their walk with the Lord and, in fact, have heard that truth preached to them long before they became Christians. But even though that's something that you've heard in the beginning, God wants you to tread over that truth over and over. Go see. Go see how I love you. The Lord would say, walk through that principle of how much I love you. From the start, hopefully, you learn that salvation is by grace and that our Christianity is accomplished in grace. That is a pathway we should walk again and again. Let's take a look again at God's grace and how God's grace operates in and through me principles and promises concerning mercy and patience and obedience and self-control and so many others are things we should adventure through again and again and look at over and over again in our walk with the Lord as we follow after him. Just because, oh yeah, I saw that one time, now I'm on to new things. That's not how it works. The Lord says, hey, go back through. Go back through my word. Go back through these truths. Go back through these things. Remind these things. Rehearse them to yourselves. Write it on your heart. Put it in front of your eyes how much I love you and about my mercy and about my grace and how I want that to operate in and through your life. It's interesting, this land that was being given to Abraham would include the land that Lot chose for himself. So Abraham didn't even really lose that in a sense. As Christians, we've been promised that we will inherit the earth, the earth. And so those things which we forfeit in the here and now for the sake of Jesus Christ are well worth it because we're going to inherit the entire earth. Verse 18, and so Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks at Mamre, 
at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. After his trip, the Lord led Abraham to settle in Hebron, about 20 miles south of what would become Jerusalem. He immediately built another altar. Way to go. While Lot worried about waterways, Abraham was worried about the way he could commune with God and worship in his presence. The difference in mindset couldn't be clearer. Abraham needed to know what was next. So did Lot. They both needed to know what's next. Where am I going to live? Where am I going to go? What, what, what's happening in our lives? One of the, these individuals took his own counsel. The other had learned that God not only knew the better choice, but that God wanted to choose for him. That is a, a big difference. Yeah, of course, God knows the better choice for your life, but we need to also accept the fact that God knows better and wants to choose for you. It's not just that he's a really smart supercomputer and that you can go and say, what would be the better choice, Lord? And he says, choose this, that would be better. God says, yeah, I know better and I want to choose. I have a pin on the map. I have a, a plan in place for your life and I want you to discover those things and walk in them, things that I have prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Will you do that? Will you follow after me? In our lives, there's a lot to be decided. But God knows if that oasis out on the horizon is actually just a mirage or whether it's the place he wants you to settle down. He will not fail to lead us on. And so our part is to relinquish the right to guide ourselves and instead stay in intimate communion and worship of the Lord and follow him. As we follow, it may be to abundance, it may be to reduction of material assets, but no matter what, we can trust our Lord because home is where the Lord is. Though none go with us, still we must follow, no turning back. And Abraham could have sang that song as Lot packed up his stuff and left and said, okay, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back. And we want that to be the song of our lives as well.